I've been wanting to teach this forever. <laughs> and I'm calling this teaching Binding the Strongs Man, How Not to Use a Concordance. It's a pet peeve of people who, who really, really study and, and who actually read the front of the book so that they know how to use them. Anyway, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist. This is Character in Context. You know, usually I teach historical and sociological context of scripture. But right now I've been doing a study series and I don't feel like going through my whole intro. I'm getting tired of it. Anyway, there is a master book list for this study series I'm doing, teaching you how to choose the right books, what resources to avoid, all that kind of stuff so that you don't have to struggle financially or time-wise the way I did when I, when I first got started. You know, and it's, it's no secret to anyone who knows me that I am not a fan of Strong's Concordance, but it isn't the fault of Strong's Concordance. The fault is the people who misuse it for things it was never intended for. And there are a lot of pastors and teachers out there using it incorrectly, telling people how to use it incorrectly. Frankly, in my experience, that's the overwhelming majority of people are the ones who use it incorrectly. So today I want to address what a concordance is and isn't, what it's useful for, and when it should be avoided. And fair warning, once you see how not to use it, it gets really cringy to hear it used in sermons and teachings. Let's look at the preface to the Hebrew section of Strong's Concordance, which was first published in 1890. This was 130 years ago that this thing was first written, and it's been revised since then. Let's look at the disclaimer. This work, namely the Hebrew section, although prepared as a companion to the exhaustive concordance, in the belief that a brief and simple dictionary of biblical Hebrew and Chaldee, Aramaic, that will be useful to students and others who do not care at all times to consult a more precise and elaborate lexicon. A lexicon is a formal book of words of a language and their definitions. And note that this is, he's saying that's not what a concordance is. Even scholars will find here not only all of a strictly verbal character, which they most frequently want in ordinary consultation of a lexicon, but numerous original suggestions, relations, and distinction commonly made and clearly put, which are not unworthy of their attention, especially in the affinities of roots, that's root words, lemmas, and the classification of meanings. The design of this volume being purely lexical does not include grammatical, archaeological, or exegetical details which would have swelled its size and encumbered its plan. In other words, Nothing is in Strong's Concordance that can be used to accurately define or translate the words in any given usage. That's very important. So all that is to say that a concordance isn't a real dictionary, and it's certainly not a true lexicon. It's a bare-bones list of the root words of the Greek and Hebrew words that we find in the Bible, along with a list of the words they were translated into. 
So the first thing we need to talk about is what exactly is a root word? A root word, which is also called a lemma, is a base word. In English, we have the word swim. That's a lemma. That's a root word. It can't be broken down any further, all right? But we can build on that word or alter or change the meaning from noun to verb and adjective. As a sport or an activity, swimming is a noun. As in, I am going swimming or they won the gold medal in swimming. It can be a verb like, my mom swims down at the YMCA for fun because she is a swimmer. Okay, and the swimmer part there was a noun. But the swims is a verb. Or it can be an adjective where the word swim describes or modifies a noun. Like, I went down to the swimming pool yesterday and I wore a swimsuit. We can take the lemma or base word swim and change the meaning by altering the spelling or with suffixes, which is different endings, which can also change the word from singular to plural. If we do this, we get not only swim, but swam, swam, swims, swimming, etc. Related words like swimmy, swimmily, and swimmingly have entirely different meanings despite sounding very similar. But not one of these words is interchangeable with any other form. And if, say, not knowing the language intimately, you trade one form for another, it will not be right. They do not mean the same thing. And in some cases, it will change the meaning of the sentence entirely. How do we know which one to choose? Well, we have to understand the immediate context of a sentence. Is it a now sort of situation? Or are we describing something in the past? How many people are swimming? Is there a being word or a helping word in front of it? Like have, had, is, or are? Is the word describing an action? Or is it modifying another word? As we would when we change the word pool to swimming pool or suit to swimsuit. Every language is filled with words just like these that we use without even thinking about it in our primary language. But when we're dealing with foreign languages, it can be a nightmare. All that is to introduce the point that a concordance would be there to give you a listing of every time the base word swim shows up in the Bible which, surprisingly, is actually six times in the King James Version, four in Hebrew and twice in the book of Acts. I didn't think it was going to show up at all, and I was regretting having used it as an example as I was writing this out. So I'm going to open up Strong's Concordance here, and I am going to look up Swim. Swim shows up in 2 Kings 6.6, 6, Psalm 6.6, 6, Isaiah 25.11, and Ezekiel 47.5. And if we look, there are also entries for swimmest and swimmeth. I hate saying words like that. <laughs> in Ezekiel 32.6 and Isaiah 25.11, which was also listed under swim. Okay, swimmest and swimmeth. And I have to tell you that I just used the concordance for exactly what it was made for. 
You know a verse has a certain word or words in it, but for the life of you, you can't remember where it is. And so you look up one of the more obscure words, like not the, a, man, said, or something too common to whittle down, all right? So you look up an obscure word in the, in, in the verse, in the concordance, and voila. So on page 1130 of my concordance, you now know all the times that a translator chose to render a Hebrew word with a word whose English root is swim. So let's look at the verses really quick in the KJV, because that is what Strong's was originally written to support. Second Kings 6.6 6 here, And the man of God said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place. And he cut down a stick, cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. And that's H6687. Uh, Psalm 6.6, 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I water my couch with my tears. That's H7811 in Strong's Numbers. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them as he that swimmeth, same root word as the last one, spreadeth forth his hands to swim again, same root word as in Psalm 6.6, 6, and he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. That's Isaiah 25.11. Ezekiel 32.6, I will also water with thy blood the land wherein thou swimmest, even to the mountains, and the rivers shall be full of thee. And that's H6824. That's a different one than we've done so far. Uh, and then Ezekiel 47.5. Afterward, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And that is H7813. So we have three of these that are the same root and three others that are different, one only slightly, but still different. Now, do all these words link back to the same Strong's word? No. So we've got four different lemmas all rendered in various forms of swim. These swim words are translational choices. And when it's the KJV, it's usually by Tyndale because the KJV is not a true translation, but a compilation and revision of what they picked and chose from earlier translations. I think somewhere like 97% of the KGV was simply lifted from other forms, but it's been a while since I looked into that, so that might be really wrong. Anyway, let's look at the four lemmas or root words in Strong's, and they are H6687, 7811, 7813, and 6824. Four of them are related to 7811, so let's start with that one and look in the quote-unquote dictionary in the back of Strong's, which says 7811 is sacha, which is sin, chet, hey, a primitive root to swim, causatively to inundate, swim, to make swim. H7813 is sahu, which is sin, chet, Vav, which comes from Sacha, which is 
the one, the root we just looked at, 7811, but it means a pond to swim in. H6687, which is, uh, which we can't pronounce. Not all roots can be pronounced, which is tsare, vav, pe, a primitive root to overflow, flow, to make overflow, swim. And finally, we have H6824, tsafa, which is tsare, pe, he, which is an inundation as covering. It's translated as swimmest is the definition they give. So we have four different Hebrew root words here translated as swim in, in one way or another, but only two of these roots are related. And they can mean wildly different things. You see, for all of our words in modern English, King James English can be a highly unspecific language. And they would use a single English word for a whole variety of concepts that can only be made clear through context, whereas Hebrew is far more specific. For example, in 2 Kings 6.6, 6, they used swim, whereas more modern translations use the far more precise word float. The idea of an axe head doing the backstroke isn't really a reasonable one, but that's what swim means to us. And yet H6687 gives a definition of to overflow, to overflow, swim. If we try to translate using the definition, it doesn't work based on our modern rules of language. Instead, those quote-unquote definitions give us a very limited sense of the root word, as well as the word or words that the translators chose to replace it with big difference between definition and translational choices. Remember that a translation is an interpretation and not simply a duplicate in another language. We need to know what it means and not just plugging in words that can mean sort of the same thing. And that is really hard to do. In Psalm 6-6, we have the psalmist making his bed swim. And that is... Uh, H7811, a word related to the concept of inundation or, in modern terms, flooding. His bed isn't swimming, but being flooded with tears. It's idiomatic, which means that you can't translate it word for word and have it mean what it actually means. Isaiah 2511 uses the same root twice in the words soche and sechot, in a far more conventional way, though as the noun swimmer and the verb swim. Nothing idiomatic here, and everyone understands how a swimmer puts out his hands as he swims, right? This is standard easy usage. Even I can get it. <laughs> In Ezekiel 47.5, we see a word related to H7811, but very different in sahu, with the sense of water deep enough to swim in. Although the dictionary says pond, the context is a river too deep to walk across. Finally, we have the really difficult word. And if you look at the verse in different translations, you'll see how much trouble they had translating the phrase Eretz Safat Eka, where Safat is H6824 and is one of those pesky words that only appears one time in scripture. 
if it was a Greek word appearing once, then it wouldn't be as big a problem because you can almost always find Greek words showing up in a ton of other documents that we have in ancient Greek. Whereas with ancient Hebrew, the Bible is literally all we have as there are no outside documents in ancient Hebrew. And so then, you know, all translators and interpreters can do is to look at the context of the verse and try to come up with a reasonable translation that honors what the text either is or seems to be saying. The KJV gives us, I will also water with thy blood the land wherein thou swimmest, even to the mountains, and the rivers shall be full of thee. Where Safat translates all of these words, blood wherein thou swimmest. And the phrase Eretz Safat Eka translates as thy blood, the land wherein thou swimmest. Modern translations do a lot better with renderings for this verse, such as I will drench the land with the flow of your blood, even to the mountains. The ravines will be filled with your gore. But we can see that the sense of the word and how it is, quote unquote, defined in the back of Strong's are worlds apart. A concordance won't give you the information needed to decide which meaning is correct, and so it cannot be used to translate a verse. And, you know, there's a guy who actually wrote like a Hebrew root slash messianic Bible, and he openly admits that all he used was Strong's and the Holy Spirit because he, he doesn't know a shred of Hebrew or, or Greek. He's making a lot of money. Single word replacements, uh, translations, or opinions are never the same as a true definition. For example, define the word Shema using only one English word. You can't. It's impossible because it is a word that means not only to hear but also to obey. However, it can also be expanded and altered to mean other things. Although it is translated as hear or something like that in most translations, you can see that to simply hear isn't always the definition. Shalom is another one. And it doesn't just mean peace. Adam doesn't simply mean man, but usually means either all of humanity or a specific man. It is the context within the verse and chapter and book which determines which of those things it means. Now, the interesting thing is how various versions of the Bible have a lot of variation on when they choose to translate Ha'adam as human beings or the man or as a proper name. Not so much in the rest of the Bible, but particularly in the first four chapters of Genesis. The translational choices are often agenda-driven. I really prefer the CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible, which calls Adam, simply the man, which is a good translation of Ha-Adam, and especially as a representative for all humanity created in the image of God. But as humankind, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where the sense is definitely plural for the creation of an image-bearing species. However, if we translate Ha-Adam as the man everywhere or humankind everywhere, or the proper name Adam everywhere, it wouldn't be at all appropriate, and this is where Strong's Concordance is often misused. Context is how we decide 
the proper translation of a word, but we also need to understand the prefixes and suffixes, you know, the beginnings and the endings, added on to a word, and we have to understand the cases or forms, which is a lot easier in Greek, where they're simply added to the word, whereas in Hebrew, you need to look at the whole clause, which is, you know, a group of words that function together as a single unit. Whether a word is accusative, genitive, or nominative is going to drastically change how the sentence should be read and understood and translated. A concordance won't give you this information, and so it cannot be used to translate a verse or any word form. It'll give you swim and not swimming or swam or swum or swims. Nominative nouns are going to be what we call the subject. The cat has a furry tail. Cat is the subject, and so it is nominative. How about Mark's cat has a furry tail? Cat is the subject and the nominative noun, but now we have Mark's, which is genitive, because although Mark is also a noun, the word is describing ownership of the cat. We see the accusative form in this sentence as well, because the cat has a tail, and tail is not the subject or about ownership, it's the direct object of the sentence. It is what the cat has. It is what Mark's cat has. Depending on the language we are dealing with, you can only figure out which is which because of word order or how a root word is changed at the beginning or ending. A concordance will not give you this information so it cannot be used to translate a verse. And honestly, that is just the stuff I can think of offhand and explain easily. Languages are not my thing, despite having tried off and on for 20 years to become more educated in them. You know, it got so bad, and I was spending so much time in prayer and study that God finally sent me a dream telling me to pretty much cut it out and to focus on what I am gifted in. <laughs> so I depend on scholars to tell me about word meanings in specific cases. Keeps me humble, for sure, because it frustrates me to be unable to master this. Or to even be, you know, vaguely competent. But it was the same way with French and German. Our brains are all quite different. And sometimes when I talk about this stuff, people get angry because they think I'm accusing them of being unable to understand the Bible unless they know original languages. And that's mostly untrue. It's true that without a certain level of fluency and or expertise, you cannot translate a verse. Any verse. It's just as impossible to translate Greek and Hebrew without an intimate knowledge of those languages as it would be to translate a Russian sentence with a Russian-to-English dictionary. Like a concordance, that's not what those dictionaries are made for. They are better than nothing. But you couldn't carry on a conversation with one. Same with Google Translate, which can make some really hilarious errors. <laughs> However, the Bible, even as a translation and an interpretation, can be understood in terms of the overall message and how it teaches us about God, his character, and how we must live if we're going to be faithful image bearers. Anyone can open up the Bible and see that we are to love one another in self-sacrificial ways and that he wants us to be different from the culture around us as far as our standards of behavior go. So, no. No one needs Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic for that. 
But if you want to really understand it as it was written, then yes, there is no bypassing having to become fully literate in the biblical languages. Not modern Greek or modern Hebrew, but biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew because they are different. Just like the language of Chaucer or the KJV is not modern English. It's not even modern UK English, not by a long shot. And I think it's important here to talk about James Strong, who compiled Strong's Concordance. First of all, he didn't actually write it. He wasn't a linguist, uh, someone who studies languages, but he leaned on the knowledge of about 100 contributors. He didn't have a doctorate, which is a PhD. He had a DD, which is a Doctor of Divinity, which is an honorary degree here in the United States where he lived. He was also given an honorary doctorate of laws degree in theology. He was a professor, but he wasn't what we would call a degreed scholar. And he certainly wasn't a linguist. Times were very different. However, he was a dedicated student of the Bible, and I'm not dissing him in any way. I am not. But what he did was to compile a list giving each and every Hebrew and Greek root word a number. In turn, there was an alphabetical listing of every KJV English word by chapter and verse, followed by the numbered Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic root word. I want you to think about what you do when you go into a search engine like Bible Gateway, and you type in a word like righteous and get 510 results for where it shows up in the entire Bible, and it will give you the actual verses that you can click on and check out. But what Bible Gateway won't give you is the original language word, and neither will the concordance or the root word, which a concordance actually will give you. What you would need if you didn't have a concordance is a good interlinear, which shows you exactly what full form original Greek or Hebrew word was being replaced, plus the Strong's numbered root word, or lemma. This is why I love my logo software, because you can get all of that in their interlinear functions. But the interlinear with the definition still doesn't give me the knowledge I would need to translate scripture. It will only tell me what translators decided to go with. That's why I don't translate scripture. I let the experts do that. Strong's Concordance is a terrific tool and especially for the folks who lived in pre-internet times. Oh my gosh, just try imagining trying to find a verse when you aren't even sure what book it is in. But it was never supposed to make up for a lack of knowledge of biblical languages. Only a helper to find verses and roots if you kind of know what you're looking for. If you look up the word man in the concordance, you might just faint. I wasn't even going to count how many times it showed up, but I did make a list of each and every Hebrew word translated as man. There are 25 Hebrew words plus three Aramaic words that we find in Daniel. 28 different words replaced with the English word man. Imagine instead of reading the Bible in English where we would assume that man is always Adam, only to find out that it can also be Ish, Enosh, Bain, Baal, Geber, Zecher, 
Hakam, Chasid, Yaled, Mut, Ebed, Elem. And that isn't even all of them, but most of these words describe not just a man, but a specific type of man. And they do it in one word. Strong's will tell you which root is behind the specific word in the verse in question. So you can see how important it is and why Strong's Concordance is really useful if used correctly. But there are also other types of resources that you would use if you really wanted to understand a word. If you really want to start digging into what the words meant in context and the reasoning behind translational choices... There is a book series called the Word Study Series, and it has dictionaries and word study guides. And the thing about the um, OT and NT complete word study guides is uh, that they point out which words go together, which words aren't actually represented in the original language, but are implied and are in there to expand it because of how our language works. Nouns and what kinds of nouns. We talked about verbs, prepositions, pronouns, all that jazz linked up to the Strong's numbers, and they're really useful. I'll provide links in the transcript and in the overall book recommendation list. Because they were published in the 1990s, you can find really cheap used ones and hardbacks out there, which is nice. Another option is the TDNT and the TDOT the theological dictionaries of the Old Testament and the New Testament. With the New Testament version, for example, it will tell you where Greek words show up and how they are specifically used in secular Greek writing, as well as in the Septuagint and the extra-biblical Hellenistic-era Jewish writings, like um, Enoch or the Testaments of the Patriarchs, that sort of thing. There is also the BDB, the Brown Driver Briggs Lexicon, which is more of a formal dictionary. And finally, the Halot, the Hebrew Aramaic Lexicon of the Old Testament, which defines words based on their contextual usage in the specific verses. But even all these don't allow anyone to translate the Bible. For that, you still need linguistic training, just like you would for any other language that you didn't grow up speaking. It's important to recognize our level of education, to be very open, honest, and humble about our limitations. If only the folks on YouTube would admit it, then we'd all be better off.